Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Adrian Goldberg's talk show, the world's most eclectic podcast. This time I've come to a house on the outskirts of Birmingham to meet 97-year-old Betty Webb. And Betty has got an amazing story to tell. I'm talking to her on the anniversary of VJ Day, 75 years ago. Betty was a codebreaker working for the US government and she was in Washington, D.C. on VJ Day itself. There's not many people who can say they were there then on that day. Certainly very few people who are still alive who can bear witness to that astonishing day. Betty was also a codebreaker at Bletchley Park, famous, of course, for its role in helping to crack the German codes during World War II. I also have to say, Betty's still a driver at the age of 97 as well. Betty, hello, how are you? Hello, I'm fine, thank you. I just wonder whether a codebreaker is the right definition for me because I like to say I was part of the team. OK, well, you weren't making the tea, though, were you, Betty? No, I wasn't. All the lunch. <laughs> Betty, we'll talk about arriving in Washington and working at the Pentagon and being there on VJ Day in a little while. But just tell me how you got into the world of code breaking during World War II. Well, I don't really know because I joined the ATS, that's the Auxiliary Territorial Service, uh, which a lot of people did at that time. And uh, I didn't really know which particular trade I uh, wanted to go in for. I was asked if I wanted to be a cook or a driver or whatever and I said I didn't know uh, but because my CV included that I'm German speaking um, I was sent to a special interview in London and um, as a result um, they put me on a train for Bletchley about which I'd never heard and certainly didn't know what went on there. Uh, and how old were you, and what year was this? Oh, this was 1941, when I was um, coming up to 18. So you got a bit of German then. How come you came to be a German speaker? Uh, because uh, my mother was in Germany during the First World War. She was a teacher near Leipzig, and uh, she got stuck there without being able to speak German. And uh, she always said, there's nothing worse than being in a country where you can't speak the language. So she insisted that we were taught right from the word go. So you joined the ATS originally and just hoping to do your just bit. do my bit, yes, rather than continue with a domestic science course and uh, just make sausage rolls. <laughs> so you go off on the train to Bletchley. Tell me what greets you at Bletchley Park, which of course is now famous as the code-breaking centre, the place where the Enigma code was cracked by Alan Turing uh, and others. What was it like when you first came to Bletchley? Well, it was very late at night, it was pitch dark, and uh, I didn't know where I was going, but I was taken immediately to a, a civilian billet in one of the villages nearby. So I didn't see anything until the following morning when I was taken into the mansion, which used to be a private house and given the Official Secrets Act to read and sign. I was uh, absolutely petrified by uh, the conditions of the Official Secrets Act, but having signed it, I realised that I was cut off from the rest of the world for 30 years. So the Official Secrets Act applied to you for 30 years. So 30 what, kind years. Of, what kind of conditions did it impose upon you? Well, just, uh, just simply not... Uh, saying anything that I saw, read or heard uh, outside my own office. 
it was absolutely forbidden to uh, talk to anybody about our work. Literally, uh, people who were uh, in the next room. And you were just 18 at the yes, time then. Yes, very so inexperienced, 18. How yes. did it feel to suddenly be presented with the Official Secrets Act? Well, it was frightening. But um, I had to discipline myself. And I said, Betty, you do it. You do as you're told. And that's the end of it. And I knew then that I wouldn't be able to tell my parents where I was or what I was doing. Now, at that stage, when you signed the Official Secrets Act, did you know what you would be doing at Bletchley Park? No. I had absolutely no idea. I was thrown into the deep end, um, mainly uh, clerical work to start with. The first job was to register the um, signals which were coming in through our signaled staff throughout the world, men and women, and uh, the signals were transferred to Bletchley either by um, teleprinter or um, it depended where it was, and if it was in this country they would probably come by dispatch rider. And my first job was to register every one of them so that the uh, code breakers could call on a date, on a particular date, and I had to be able to turn it up quickly. So what were the signals that were coming in? Well, the signals were mainly from Germany, but of course we were at war with Italy and, and Japan. But uh, I think it's fair to say that most of the signals at that time would have been uh, German ones, and they would be our people would be looking for troop movements and dates. And how were they getting hold of those signals then, which were presumably being transferred from, from one German division to another? Uh, yes, well, we were listening in to the, uh, to the uh, enemy signal men and women, I expect, all in uh, Morse code. Everything was uh, in either letters or figures, groups of five letters or figures, Nothing was in the clear except the date. It's the only thing we had to go on. How did your work progress then at Bletchley Park? What did you end up doing? Oh, yes, after doing lots of typing jobs for several different people, I then was discovered to be able to uh, paraphrase, decoded and translated Japanese messages. I don't know quite how it was discovered, but apparently somebody thought I was good at it, and that's, that's what I did from about 1944 onwards. Had you got any knowledge of Japanese? Oh, I didn't need to have it, because everything I handled had already been translated, decoded and translated. So what did you do with that information then? Well, I had to put it into uh, two envelopes. The first one was addressed with lots of figures and letters, which meant nothing to me. And then the outer one uh, had instructions for the dispatch rider. It, again, it would have been, uh, I think, a fairly obscure message, but they knew what to do with it. <laughs> and, but, of course, with this degree of um, security, I didn't ask questions and I wasn't told. I was just told to do, do the job and leave it at that. So just so I understand, though, what was the job that you did then? You weren't breaking the code. No, no, I wasn't breaking the code. I was transcribing the decoded and translated messages. I had to reword it, or transcribe if you like, so that if the enemy picked it up, they wouldn't immediately think, ah, oh, the British have broken the codes. That, uh -huh. that was what we hoped, anyway. So you had to 
write it in such a way that the person receiving the message would understand what it really meant. That's right. But that if it, w- but also had to ensure that if it was intercepted, its meaning would not be clear to an enemy. Oh, absolutely, yes. Wow. It was a bit of uh, cheekiness in a sense, if you see what I mean. <laughs> well, you obviously had that in spades, didn't you? Yes. <laughs> Yes, it was a great privilege to to have been chosen to go because I was the only ATS girl in the Pentagon. And as far as I know, I was the only person who was doing this transcribing. So you were then, at the end of the war in Europe, after VE Day, you were sent off, you were seconded to the United States. That's right, yes. I went over in June 1945. But of course, with the war ending uh, when it did, um, today, 75 years ago... um, that was the end of my job there. What can you remember of VJ Day in Washington, D.C.? Oh, my goodness. Very, very noisy. Everybody came out, hundreds and hundreds of people, fixed their car horns and made the most incredible din for about 24 hours. And also the most exciting thing was the fact that um, America had some food rationing, but it wasn't anywhere near as um, fearsome as ours was. Uh, but there was a certain amount of meat rationing but it was very noticeable that the minute uh, peace was declared, uh, meat appeared everywhere. <laughs> well, it's like it had been held in reserve. Been held in reserve, that's right, yes. This big celebration. Uh, that was very noticeable. And there was, of course, a general air of relief at that stage. Yeah. And you were doing the same job there then, transcribing, yes. trying to take the decoded messages and relaying them in a way that would not be understandable to the uh, enemy. Very well put, yes. Right, thank you. But would be understandable to people on your side. That's right, yes. How did the Americans treat you compared to the British? Reasonably well. There were a few instances of people shouting bloody limey out in the streets, <laughs> but you accepted that. I mean, they, they were probably uh, fairly ignorant sort of people anyway. But by and large, we, we had a very good um, re- relationship with the Americans that we worked with. It is astonishing, given the prestige and the power of the United States government on the global stage, defence operation is housed in the Pentagon to think that you were there working inside it. Yes, I was working there with 32,000 other people. Can you imagine the numbers? Does that give you a big sense of pride, a big thrill when you look back at it? Yes, it it does. I don't think I felt it at the time. It's things that, you know, you you store in your memory and then then realise, well, gosh, that that was quite something. And the... um, centre of the Pentagon is, is a, an open area, 35 acres, I think. And uh, when General Eisenhower finished his job in Europe, he came over to see us in, in the Pentagon in a tank. And he went <laughs> all the way around and we were quite near to him, actually. That was quite a thrill. Who else did you meet or come close to of any of the wartime leaders or well-known um, names? Well, I think I found myself in the lift with General Slim one day, but <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't very slim and there wasn't much room for us both in the lift, but uh, I wasn't presented or anything. But, um, I mean, clearly there were a lot of very senior people within the uh, our three services who were serving over there. And one of the things we had to do to uh, visit the... Uh, embassy, the British embassy, and uh, that's a a lovely place. I didn't actually meet the ambassador and his wife, but because we'd signed the book, uh, we all had a little card from them afterwards, which I still have. 
beautiful stuff. And you said that you had to sign the Official Secrets Act, which I guess meant that for many years the work that was done both at Bletchley Park and then at the Pentagon wasn't known about, wasn't discussed? Oh, absolutely not. Not until uh, 1975. And I discovered that it was all open. I was actually near the cathedral in Birmingham and uh, there was a girl across the road whose face was familiar to me. I didn't know her name. She called out, it's out. I said, what's out? And she said, we can now talk. I said, oh, well, thank you. I don't pretend, I don't intend to do any talking. And that was, I never saw her again. And I didn't start talking about it until in, in the 90s when we started having reunions where we were encouraged to talk about our individual jobs. And that is how, I think it's fair to say, most of us uh, got the whole picture. So we now... We've now come to know, not least through dramas like The Bletchley Circle and Mm. The Imitation Game, Mm. about some of what went on at Mm. at Bletchley Park. How do you feel about that work now that you did? Well, to go back to the films, I like to stress that, okay, um, they were all right as a film in themselves, but it's not the whole story by any means. I mean, the processing was quite... um, large you got the signal people first of all we relied on them for who, our information who were gathering the data they were gathering the data then they had to be de- decoded then transcribed then analyzed and then sent to whoever would benefit from them either straight to the prime minister or straight to commanders in the field it was a very very big process and of course time was of the essence and the movies make it look like maybe it's just one or two people doing no. that job. No. <laughs> well, uh, in the end, you see, there were something like 8,000 people working there. Uh, most of them, we women outnumbered the men three to one. That's where it tickles me when they say, what about romances? I didn't have much of a chance, really. It's also, I think, important in terms of understanding our history because war is often told in terms of the daring-do exploits of soldiers who traditionally in the UK have been men. This was a role that was carried out predominantly, predominantly by, women. by women. Yes, that's right, it was, yes. Yes, I think we came into our own rather well. <laughs> I mean, clearly there were a lot of men there. They were mainly uh, uh, very senior men and also um, because of um, their health state... Um, they were generally um, older people, but the younger ones would be in the field. So there were not very many younger men. So as we sit here today, looking on your beautiful green lawn, your lovely <laughs> garden here, just outside Birmingham, how do you reflect on the work that you and your colleagues did to ensure that Europe and the United States were not threatened by Nazism? Well, um, clearly I'm very thankful, as we all are, and we're very glad that we were of an age that we could help with the process of, of beating the enemies. We're very proud indeed. We're also very uh, very pleased that um, Bletchley Park is still there. It's now been put back to its original state, 
and uh, is one of, I would like to think, and I think I'm right, in one of the best archives and museums in the world. And I'm just looking up on your wall there. You're being presented with an award. It's signed by Gordon Brown, but I think it's David Miliband. It's David Miliband who presented us with the uh, commemorative badge. It's not a medal, but uh, that came along in 2009. Well, I think we all owe you a big debt of gratitude, Betty. People like you who did so much to keep our country free. Thank you. Well, uh, it was my duty and I'm just... I'm really glad that I was of the right age to take part and do a little, if if not, um, yes, a little. I think people who hear this story for the first time will be impressed by what you've told us, Betty. I think perhaps almost as impressive is the fact that at the age of 97, you're still driving. (laughs) Yes, I'm also still giving a lot of uh, information and talks about Bletchley and uh, giving interviews wherever I'm asked. It's important to keep these memories alive. It is important to keep them alive. And interestingly, I'm finding that more and more schools are taking up the subject quite seriously. Well, thank you again, Betty. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking with you.